Okay. Um, okay, and I'm going to put the um, going to put the um, the file for the Macurit in the chat now, so everybody should be able to get to download that. Um, and okay, so this the this year is um, is uh, for Fushlema for uh, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, Rabbi Yaakov Tzvi Ben Liba, and my goal in this year. Uh, to the extent that I'm capable of that kind of self-control, is to present uh, Rabbi Sachs's position, as opposed to um, spending all the time uh, all the time doing doing my own. Uh, so I'll say um, at the outset that there are um, at least four different ways that one could evaluate. I think uh, Rabbi Sachs's uh, position. You can evaluate it based on whether you really like what he has to say. Um, you can evaluate it um, in a, you know, a rigorous philosophic tradition. Is it a coherent, original position on the on the philosophic issue he's addressing? That's the kind of work that uh, Professor Alan Brill uh, is doing, and he you know, sent me a whole lot of Makara, which I did not um, have time to fully assimilate. Uh, so I'm not going to compete with Ray Brill in the in the arguments. So what you know, what little I know of the background philosophy, I'll try and share to the extent that it's useful understanding him. Um, I ran a conference on. Dignity of difference. Uh, some years ago, it's not clear to me that if you were doing it in, on a rigorous philosophic analysis, that the work has been done to get it there yet. But I don't think that means it's not um, a really important contribution. So I'll go back to the first one. I do think it is uh, right. If you haven't seen the book, right? So here's the book. I think uh, it might be one of the most important uh, Jewish books written in the past century. Um, but I don't know that you know that it, that it's. Uh, profoundly rigorous philosophic work. Um, that's one issue that has to be addressed, which we won't talk about much tonight. Uh, there's the question of whether it is, uh, whether it fits in with um, compelling, uh, is, is a compelling read of um, Jewish tradition um, in the full, right, in the full orthodox sense. So there's a challenge in that this book was not written for a Jewish audience specifically. Uh, it was written you know, very explicitly. Tells the introduction is written, you know, as an attempt to say something Jewish to the world, and therefore it has uh, minimal parochial Jewish sources. Right? It quotes very few Makarot that aren't right outside of Tanakh because they're not relevant to the um, right to the audience he's trying to address, and it's a real challenge. There was a time I think when the the office of the chief rabbi had a whole website trying to put up Makarot uh, that support that supported his position. Um, and um, I'm not sure, but I think that um, that's also beyond tonight. If there's interest, I could give the you know, go through the sheer going through the Makarot that might or might not support his position. But again, my own position is this is really, really important, and we should be spending lots of time trying to make sure that we can find the Makarot to make it work. If we can't, we can't, but I'm a big rooting, I have a big rooting interest in making it work. Uh, the last axis, which is what we are focusing on tonight, is what about just as a reading of Tanakh in Jewish tradition, right? As opposed to saying, look, we're finding all the Rishonim who take halachic positions about exactly what the boundaries are of what constitutes, so, say, a legitimate legitimate worship opportunity for Bnei Noach, right? But we're reading Tanakh, and particularly we're reading the story of Migdal Babel, and does Rabbi Sachs say um, provide a compelling um, Jewishly authentic reading of the story that teaches us something? And that's really what our goal is tonight. The goal tonight is to re is to read the Migdal Babel story and see, right, not to offer the you know the, the wide range of opportunities, but just to see, does Rabbi Sachs' reading at the end of it come out saying, wow, that's a really good Jewish reading of the story? I'm hoping the answer is yes.
Okay, so I'm telling you up front, I have a, uh, I have a rooting interest. Okay, so if you look at the Makara tree, uh, so we're going to do first is I just want to go through the text of the Migdal story quickly once, so that we can all, uh, we can all make sure that we've, um, that we've seen it. I seem to have lost one page of the Makara, but I will get that back, I imagine, at some point. Um, uh, here it is. Okay. And, um, and after, we, after, after we read the story, um, we're going to go uh, do five, five it is? Six. Six background ideas to introduce Rabbi Sachs's reading. Uh, then we're going to do Rabbi Sachs's reading, and then we're going to go look at some at the way in which some Rishonim and Achronim approach the issue and see how they fit into his reading. Okay, so let's start with, um, on the text, we're going to go to, um, right, that's page page one of the current sheet. Uh, I guess I'm going to put it on again for those of you who came on late uh, in the chat. Um, okay, there's the current sheet, right? So on um, on page one, this is just a story of Midal Bavel. I'm going to read it while pointing out uh, some of the... Um, some of, the, some of the points out, you'll see there are asterisks for the specific um, issues I want to address. Um, you know, actually, to make life easier for some of you, I'm going, to sh- I'm going to share a screen while we're doing that. That seems to me to be workable. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So here is the um, here's the, here's the, here's the story of Double Bell. I am picking a particular place for it to start. Um, right. Which you have to figure out what the well, always to figure out what literary boundaries of the start. I'm going to start uh, two psukim early uh, from where the Double Bell itself starts, which begins with. Eilib b'nei Shem. Okay, so Eilib b'nei Shem. These are the sons of right, of Shem, who is the right the page two of the Makara sheet is the English, so you can follow along with my idiosyncratic translation if you want on the English. Lemishbechotam, l'shonotam, b'arzotam, l'goyehem. So there are four different terms which you can translate as you wish uh, for some kind of identification. Right, mishpacha is I, I think I translated as clan. L'shon is often translated as language. But it literally means tongue. Arzotam is a land, and goyehem is some kind of term for some kind of larger, larger than family grouping. You might, you might say ethnicity, All right? So bnei shem divide in, right are dividable, divisible into four different categories. Okay. Then we get a state, right. The next verse is talking about bnei noach. Uh, bnei noach, we get the word mishpachot again, families. Um, we get goyehem again, right? That's the next bolded term. We get goyim again. We get we get aretz. Right. So three of the four categories occur by Noah, but we replace lashon, which is about bnei shem. We replace that with toldotam, uh, right? Which could mean their descendants, their history. Right. There's a whole a whole uh, whole fight about toldotam because of the places where it's not followed by a uh, it's not followed by a genealogy. Okay. So first bnei shem, divisible in those categories. Bnei Noah, divisible in a different category. And now we get to the narrative. But he kol aretz. The whole land is Safa achat. So we don't know what a uh, what a safa is, right? Uh, right? A safa and a lashon could be the same thing, um, right? They could both mean language, but a lashon is a tongue and a safa is a lip. So you could try and figure out, right, whether it makes a difference, whether we're talking whether we're, whether we're talking about the inside or the outside, however you want to make it distinguish. But right, as opposed to they shamed were divisible and benoach and benoach were divisible. The whole aritz is um, indivisible. It's safa achat. Okay. Now, in terms of saying the whole story, we have to address the question, right? So the, the previous sentence, Mishpachot Benoach began, Ume'ela, and from these, Nifridu ha'goyim ba'aretz achar mabul. The goyim split in the land after the mabul. So the question is, is this a, is this a foreshadowing of the end of the Midal story? Or did it happen before the Midal story? If it happened before the Midal story, so what does it mean afterwards? That the whole land is a safa, achat, 
when everything's already been split, the Lashon Otam, Barat Sotam. On the other hand, right, so, right, so we don't know when to situate the Midabavel story in the context of the narrative. Then after you have Safa Achat, you have this fascinating phrase, which is Udvarim Achadim. So we want to point out is that Achat, uh, right, means one. Achadim is a, is a fascinating word because it's a plural of one. Right, so right, so right. I thought of translating it as like one, right, one language, one language, and one words because achadim could be right, right, could mean one, right, as a right, um, nouning the nouning the verb, or nouning the whatever it is, right. No, whatever, I forget what it is. Turning to some, I don't even know what part of speech it is. Uh, not a part of speech, I don't think. Maybe a past part. I don't know. Um, any case, right. So achadim is a fascinating word. Now, obviously, right, echat is going to be a key term here, um, and to find right, so so trying to figure out what achadim means, why why in the very beginning we introduce um, we we introduce um, a, a complicated word like this is challenging, right? So Len says not many or a few. So there are three other places in which achadim occurs in Tanakh. The ones you'll remember. There's a third one that doesn't change much. Is that when Yaakov is working for Rachel, right? So it says that the the work, the work seemed to him kiyamim achadim. Right, so that seems to suggest a few. So that's right, but that would like that's like massively anticlimactic, right? So the whole land was one language and a few things. <laughs> right, that doesn't right, that doesn't mean much at all. So that's so the word achadim is a problem that we have to address all the way through. Okay, what happens when they're traveling mikedem? They find a bikah in Eretz Shinar by Yishvusham, and they stay there. Um, then they say to each other, Hava, so Hava is this introductory term, let us, or something of the sort. Nil um, right? So right here you have like obvious, you know, if you're into massive, uh, if you're into, you know, omnisignificance, right? The uh, Ramban's term, that Chumash is supposed to be written with absolute uh, economy of language. So Nil Banal right? It sounds like it's obviously, you know, it's whether it's reduplicative, right? Um, that uh, right, it uses the same verb, right? Same same verb, and that will brick, will brick bricks, and will um, and will burn burnings. All right, so that's a challenging figure. And then it's shifted is um, So in Levinah is a brick, and Evan is a stone, right? And Chemer Chomer are are presumably. A, a, a natural and a constructed and, a, and artificial materials that serve uh, to play the right to, to uh, join bricks together in some kind of solid in some kind of solid way. So here I'll indulge myself. I don't want to go for my sex, right? My own position about the Dalbavella that this is absolutely critical, um, and the the key of it is Levena and Leaven, um, where because there is probably no relationship at all on our etymological level between Levena and Aven. The lamed is a, right. The lamed is not the lamed is not part of the word, right? Of le'aven, the lamed is a is a prefix. It means two. It's not the right prefix. Right? We don't usually use lamed as in place of. Right? So everybody has to comment here. Right? But the brick served them, um, right? In place of rock, so it looks like it's an excuse to get the lamed in there, and that way le'aven looks like just like levena. Um, right, so right, and that's why my English translation has that bricks serve them in place of rock, so you can get the you can get the same uh, right the same sounds and pitch in place of putty, even though that's not what putty means. And but it tells you right that there's 
what looks like massive inefficiency is all just there to get in the puns and that you have to pay profound attention to the way in which language is used in the Migdal Bavel, Bavel story. Okay, so now, after the, the first name is Ishal Re'ehu, and now it just says Ve'omru, they say. It doesn't say Ishal Re'ehu now, right? So you have to figure out why, whether that's just because it's the same characters and it's just uh, it's just resumptive repetition uh, after we interrupted by saying, you know, that bricks serve them in place of rock, or is it telling you something about a change relationship? So they say Hava again, We'll build a city and a tower with its with its uh, head with its head in the heavens. Um, usually, it's punctuated because the way the truck has it is, we'll build ourselves a city and a tower with its head with its with its head um, in the uh, in in the in the heavens. And that seems more likely than right because it, be, it should be plural if it means both a city and a tower to the heavens. Okay, shame. We'll make ourselves a name. Pen nafutz al penekal aretz, lest we, uh, lest we scatter over the face of all the land. Right there's again kol aretz, uh, kol, kol, kol aretz, as opposed to an initial situations where, where they're going to spread out ba'aretz, not bechol aretz. Okay, so now God descends vayirat Hashem to see the city and the tower. Asher banu bnei ha'adam, and if you're you know, being sensitive to puns now, so you notice there's banu bnei, uh, right? The, the, that that sort of pun you already know from. The whole Bonayich Lumidei Hashem, right, which is the fundraising, right, the fundraising quote, right, that all your, all your, all your, all your sons, but usually, right, usually people translate in, in English. They tell you it's not sons; it means uh, it means builders. And the and many many scholars will tell you it's not builders either. It actually means those who understand you, right? Bonayich are the, right comes from Bina and not from Bonet. So now you figure out what Banu Bene, uh, right? Sure, Banu Bene had um, which one, which meanings. Of bet nun are implied there. Okay, now, right? So God descends, and then God says, "Vayom Rashem." We don't know. We don't know who God is talking to. Right? It's always a problem um, because, and it's going to be a plural here, as there is by Nasa Adam Bitzalmenu. So God said, "Hey, Amichad." So now we introduce a whole new term, Am. Right? We had all those terms for ethnicity up, up right above. We had Toldot and Mishpachot and Goyim and Lishon. Right? And Lishonot, and now all of a sudden we get Am. And Safa Achat Lekulam. So they're Amichad and Safa Achat Lekulam. God does not mention Farim Achadim. Um, and now, right, and if and now nothing that they want to do will um, right will be prevented from them. There, so now God responds to their Hava. He says, Hava, Nirdav and Avlasham Svatam. Right, we're going to go and confuse their languages or their language, uh, which are right. Asher lo Yishmuish so that they will no longer um, hear each other's language. And then, right, we don't actually see God do it, right? All we say is that God, right, God says, let's do it. And then they, or off screen it happens and God scatters them, presumably. So they cease building the city. God doesn't knock it down. They cease to build the city. Right, that's why it's called Bavel, because there God confused the, the Safa of all the land and God scattered them on the face of all the land. And we go back to the generations of shame. Okay, that's the narrative as such, and you have some of the key linguistic points uh, that uh, that I think are critical and that may be helpful in understanding the rest of the story. Okay, so let's go now to um, to this axis. Okay, so here, right here, we're going to do six ways of thinking about this story as background. So one, um, which, if I recall correctly, uh, I was I was very impressed by this in Aviva Zornberg's uh, book. 
of the beginning of the beginning of the um, desire. Yeah. Um, so talks about the way in which you can think about the Midalba Bell story visually, and the way you can think of it where you can plot it. Um, right, you plot it that there are two planes. There's the the plane. Right, there's the horizontal plane and the vertical plane, and the people. Right, right. The people do not want to spread out in the horizontal plane, so instead they seek to put themselves in the vertical plane. Right, they want to stay in one place, but that one place, right, has has height. So they build a tower. They build a tower. All they build a tower all the way up. And the impression you have is that human beings, right, humanity occupies a set volume or a set area. We have to figure out how you work out the dimensions. It's just a question of on which in which plane. They're um, right. That human beings are going to be. They're going to be horizontal. They're going to be vertical, and uh, right. That 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 is a Vimez Orenberg contribution that you can think of the whole story as right as this tension between God's desire, approval, milukola arets, which is God wants human beings to be horizontal, and human beings seek to be vertical. Um, so I wanted to point out that there, you know, that that actually, when you think about it that way, it gives you interesting notions of right. Does because you know, if you were thinking of it as a uh, in a cartoon form, right? So if you have a being in heaven, and the creatures are bu- creatures are building a tower to get up to heaven, so what usually happens in a cartoon is that the creature in heaven is going to smash, right? This is going to smash it down, and it's going to compress. The right, they're they're trying to build up. Or you think you're this tall, really you're just this short. But that's not what happens here. They get scattered, so they're not actually diminished. All that happens is it, all that happens is a change in the axis. And right, and God doesn't destroy the tower, right? All that, right? Whatever God does happens off screen, and at the end of it, it doesn't seem as if the tower or the city, we don't, the tower vanishes, right? In the story, right? If you look at it right at the end, God says, "Let's scatter them so they won't understand each other," and right, then He scatters them, and they cease building the city. The tower just vanishes from the story at all. So there's no, um, nothing happens to diminish them. All that happens is that their orientation is changed. Okay, then I also wanted to point out, right, that the other story, you know, the, the modern midrash on the Tower of story is, is Dr. Seuss's Yertle the Turtle. And what Yertle the Turtle, if you have if some of those of you recall it, teaches you is that there are, um, there's a difference between the horizontal and vertical axis, is that horizontally, you, everybody is independent and autonomous, but vertically, once I get on your shoulders, you can't move without knocking me down. And the more people climb on my shoulders, the less you can move, A, because of the consequences, and B, because there's this enormous weight on you. So verticality, uh, verticality means that there are people bearing more weight on the bottom and people with a better view on top. Right? So even though you're occupying the same space, but human being seeking to be vertical means that they are automatically creating a, you might call a, a hierarchical society, right? literally. Um, whereas in a horizontal axis, you could imagine Everyone living in kind of a Jeffersonian paradise, right? Where, where, where everybody's living on their own land and, um, and and entirely independent. So you could treat it right, taking Zorenberg's uh, vision that way, as opposed to right. So the one way you right, and I think that the way in which you learn in elementary school usually is that they're building a tower to attack heaven, and that's the point of verticality. Uh, but whether the, whatever their goal is, you can say that an underlying aspect is that shifting shifting human experience to verticality as opposed to horizontality has all sorts of implications. Uh, and those implications are ironic if you think that the right the initial claim is right everybody is if you think that means that everybody is exactly the same right you've built in a classless society so then the ambition of verticality kind of right kind of undermines that that um, that whole idea
Okay, so that's one um, one axis to think about. Okay, second axis, which uh, probably some of you are on, uh, right here, here will uh, will recall is an exercise I like to do, because um, it's good to teach people about liturgy and also is good for teaching this this story. So if you the the weekday morning kedusha, right Nusach Ashkenaz begins we translate English, right? We will sanctify your name in heaven, uh, right? Just as they sanctify it in the heavens above. And then you get no puns at all, no linguistic sensitivity. But if you read it in Hebrew, you get, right? A constant repetition of shin mems. And each of these means something different, right? is your name. Keshem means just like. Shin mem is just, right? It's just two prefixes. Shim is just a, a plural, a plural ending, and Shimei is heavens, right? But that's the right. So the the right, the opening kedusha succeeds in getting uh, five consecutive shin mems, uh, uh, right? With uh, meaning meaning five different things. Um, okay, it's also right. The is also very much the horizontal, uh, the vertical axis there, because the whole point of the opening kedusha is we will sanctify your name. In this world, just like they, the angels, sanctified in the heavens above, and so the parallel uh, between the Shimcha Ba'olam and the Shemei Marom is meaningful as well. But I just wanted to do that because this is a um, spotting of a hidden shames, right? Um, hidden, right is uh, a, an important part of understanding the story of Migdal Bavel as well. We pointed out that the story begins and ends, right? It's, it's bracketed by the genealogy of the son of Noah, Shem. And that seems unlikely to be a coincidence. I noted that uh, that well, I I can't imagine that either of us was the first person to notice it. I remember, I thought, I, but I, I noticed it. But I, I saw online today that uh, Judy Quitzner um, also notices the same thing as bracketed by shame. And for many people, you know, in in two thousand years, but it's very unlikely that somebody wouldn't have, wouldn't have caught this. Um, but now, then you also right, you have that you understand the story shame is critical in the story because shame, right? That's what they say, right? Let's build, why are they building a tower? Because we want to make ourselves a name. And the end of the story is So they get a name, it's just not the name they wanted, right? The name they want is is Babel. So if we're looking at the story of the, at the story of Midal Babel, right? So it's, it has it has shame in the beginning, shame in the end, the right? And one of the, um, one of the, the key reversals is they want to shame to, right, so it's not to scatter. Instead, they get the name of the place which leads to scattering. But if you actually go back to the um, to the to the text and you start playing the hunt, the, the way we played the game, um, hunting hunting the shames in the Kadesh and Shulchan so you'll notice, right? So if you look at it, the word sham shows up a lot, right? Where we start here, right? We could say, right? Right, so you'll find that there's a lot of uh, shin mems all the way through this story, which may matter. Um, in my own reading, I think that is actually critical, which is the question we have to ask is, right, what do names mean in Bereshit generally? And to, right, and the easy way of just framing that for you is that, um, that the, in creation, right, what God does is he names things, right, they cry, Right, God calls whatever, whatever you want to translate the words for day and night, uh, equivalently. And then Adam does the same thing, right? He calls, right? He names the animals. So, right? So what goes on in the story, right, around naming is is directly connected back to, uh, right, the story of Bereshit. Okay, that's a um, 
And right, that's another issue is to figure like why clearly the story is built around names and names to some extent may be a function, uh, may relate it to the centrality of language. And um, we have to figure out what that means. Okay. A third question is someone may be bothered by, right, what's going on with Kola Aretz and how does it relate to the narrative of the stories of shame already spreading out? So Rabbi Yaakov Mecklenburg is a 19th century uh, Pashtan as a comment that I think is just common sense valuable. It says, Kola Aretz Safa Achat. Right, what does it mean that the whole land was one safa, right, one lip something? Itachain, he says, right, makes sense. It doesn't mean the whole earth. It means a it means a particular land. He picks one of the lands earlier in the earlier in the genealogy because it says that they came Mikedem, so he picks the place of people who previously reached Kedem. The Tam Kolaris, the mini Kolaris is just Kolarisahi, it just means that land. So on the one hand, right, yes, some people are always bothered by the um, you know, the, his, the historicity realism of the story, right? Was, what was every were all human beings really scat, right? Really contained in a single valley? Uh, so you know, so Mecklenburg says no, that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is that it's talking about a particular land. Um, I think that nonetheless, right, having done that, we should then say, but is the story supposed to be read as a specific thing happened? Uh, or is the story supposed to be read as a metaphor for something about the human condition? Um, and I would tend to think it's the latter, um, that it's, make, it's making a claim that whatever happened there um, in some way was emblematic of something about the human condition. Not making a claim that it happened that way, but making a claim that what happened there is typical, symbolic, whatever it may be. But it may affect your thinking about it, whether you think that it's making, even in the context of the narrative, a, a universalist claim, or whether it's taking, or it's making a, uh, a metaphorical claim. Okay. Um, next, uh, right, so that's three axes we have now, right? So we have the horizontal, three, three backgrounds, horizontal, vertical, the significance of the word shame, and the question of whether this is supposed to be all of humanity or a story about a specific exemplar. All right, axis four, uh, the word echad, or one. Uh, so what does it mean to be one? So there are four, uh, I think, straightforward meanings. Uh, one is that to want to be one is to be simple. Okay, simple simple means that you have no parts into which you can be you can be analyzed or um, or divided. Right, it's, that's right. Just simple. Right, simple means that you are you you right you are a uh, a you are a sing a singleness whatever you want to call it right. Uh, right, it's difficult, right? Typical, difficult to think of a thing that would be uh, that would be that would be really simple because right, everything, anything that has dimensions, right, is part of the challenge, right? That in uh, the word simple doesn't really apply in ordinary uh, language easily because everything is divisible along various dimensions, right? Size, right? You can divide it into inches, weight, you can divide it into pounds. But imaginally, I'd say a rubber ball. If you weren't thinking about dimensions, right, a rubber ball each. Each part of the rubber, you can think of it as just a single rubber ball. There's no, there's no, there's no difference. With, there's no difference within it, perhaps. Okay, you can be single, and single does not in any way imply simplicity. Single means that what, whatever you are as a whole, and you could be a compound made out of a billion things, right? But you're the the one cookie. You're a single cookie and a package of cookies. All right, that's all right. You're one, right? Right? There could be two of you. There could be three of you. There could be four of you. Right? There's just one. There's just one of you. It says nothing about you. All it says, all it says, is that you are not the right. That you are not everything because there are others like you, or other things like you. 
You can be unique, which means that you're single, and there are things other than you, and those things other than you are not like you. Right? Another way of saying unique is singular, right? That you're the only one. You're the only one like you. It doesn't say anything about what you're like internally, but whatever you are, right, as opposed to being one of many, you are one of one. There is nothing, right? Um, okay. And then there is unified, uh, right? Which means that there are lots of parts of you, but all those parts of you combine as opposed to working at working at cross purposes, right? So lots of people, lots of individuals unify into a family, a tribe, a nation, or things like that, right? So you have four meanings of the of the word echad. Now, if we go back to the uh, right to the narrative where it says, "Hein am echad echad right? That's that's the narrator where God says, sorry, that's what God said, right? And the opening of the text says, udvarim achadim." Right, so you have to try and figure out uh, what meanings, right? What meanings those have? It's very hard to make achadim mean simple, but what echad and echad mean can mean any of these. And this gave you an exercise, right? Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad, right? So the Rambam, in say, right, saying Hashem Echad, right, argues very vociferously. This has deep impact on later you know, Jewish philosophy that Hashem Echad means that God is simple and indivisible, um, as opposed to the contemporary philosopher. Uh, um, uh, Professor Michael Wishagrod, who is, we'll see Rabbi Sachs has some uh, relationship to, who goes, who you know, protests the Maimonidean notion that it, right, that God is necessarily simple, right? He wants Hashem Echad mean, to mean God is unique. Okay. Um, fine. Okay. Um, then I wanted to bring, right, that's another axis you have to think about, right? What does the term Echad mean? Okay, next, um, I want to talk about a, a literary technique, um, which, uh, which we call, in, in, um, in Hebrew, we call Ikar Chaser Amin Sefer, that the, the, key, the, the key point is missing from the text. Now, we usually do that as an attack, right? Can your explanation be correct? After all, there is, uh, after all, right, it's not in the text. Uh, but another way of thinking about it is the Sherlock Holmes notion of the curious case of the dog in the night, right? What's curious, right? Because when the dog didn't bark, uh, Holmes, that's exactly right, Watson, right? That was a curious thing, uh, right? Sometimes as a literary, right, the, sometimes an absence, right? Just a glaring absence in the text, um, right? At least you have the issue when there's a glaring absence in the text, you can say, okay, th so that's obviously not the point. And the reason it's absent is to teach you, don't look there. And the other possibility is that it's, its absence is so glaring that it tells you that is the point, and that's what we want you to think about. But maybe we want you to figure it out. Maybe there are multiple options as opposed to telling you what it is. So, um, to give you an example from last week's parsha, where that uh, that issue comes up. So, Cain um, says to Hevel his brother, and then they're in the field, and Cain rises up against his brother Hevel and kills him. So we don't know what Cain said to Hevel his brother. Right? All is right. So. You have two approaches. One possibility is it really doesn't matter what Cain said to Hevel. And that's the approach that Rashi eventually takes as shot. Rashi says Cain said something to Hevel to start a conversation because that would, you know, that would, he was looking for a confrontation. But the other approach, which is what the Midrashim take, is that that conversation is what starts the fight. There's, right, and, the, and, the, and the Midrashim go to their great efforts to figure out what was the topic of the conversation. Were they arguing about Property, where they arguing about uh, about romance, but right about right about or about greed, greed versus lust versus ideology, right? So, right. This is the Chama Libos's interpretation of the Midrash 
a midrash saying that there are at least three options, right? One option is they were fighting that one of them took the land and one of them took the movable property and they were fighting about, right, who really owned everything. And the other possibility is they're arguing about either Chava or, or an extra twin sister. I wrote about that last week. Or, right, the giveaway is they're arguing about they divided the land and they're arguing about in whose section the Beit HaMikdash will be, which tells you that they're arguing about ideology, right, or God, right, or religion. Right, so that those are all interpretations that assume that the the part that's missing from the text is crucial, and the midrash, uh, you know, uh, will will build focus on the word sadeh, or there must be something about the field that um, right something right, and so they find all sorts of associations with the word field to do that. So they have an example where it might be that the it might be that if the text leaves something out, it's doing that because it doesn't matter. That's Rashi's approach. Or it could be the text is leaving something out because that's what does matter, and it's trying to get you to think about it. So what really causes even brothers to get into situations where they would be willing to kill each other? So now in the Midala Vel story, we have the same issue, uh, perhaps, because we don't really know. Right? We have these very vague terms, right? We don't really know why God is upset with them. I guess that's probably the thing that's most missing. Right, God says, right, you know, this is what they've done, and now whatever they planned won't be prevented. What? We don't know what they planned. So you have all Midrashim that put all sorts of things in, right? They're planning to attack God, it's a Vodazara. All right, so you have to figure out um, right, which way do you want to read the story? Do you want to read the story that all the information has to be there? Or do you think that the story deliberately leaves out key elements of motivation? Because those it's part of the technique is that you're supposed to have to figure those out for yourself. Okay, that's approach number five. And approach number six. Um, the approach number six. So there is uh, something which I don't think that is a finish to me to call the scandal of difference. Um, the scandal of difference is both a um, is both a religious, philosophic, phys- um, you know, scientific problem. Uh, which like how do you get multiplicity? So in um, in physics, I think right. I always people always get mad at me. At least the MIT students always used to get mad at me uh, when I tried to talk about science, and that's probably still the case. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna blow this again. But from my very very lay perspective, uh, if you start with a Big Bang thesis, or everything begins with a singularity, so the point is that a, a singularity means that there that everything is exactly the same. It's really you know, fundamentally simple, I guess, in a sense. Like not indivisible, but every part is exactly the same, and then everything explodes, and everything should explode in a perfect symmetry if everything starts off the same, and it doesn't. So you have lots of fun cosmologies trying to figure out why the universe isn't perfectly symmetrical if actually it begins from an explosion of an undifferentiated mass, right, where really the forces should be the same in every direction, and the universe should be perfectly symmetrical, and it's not. And people have all sorts of really fun cosmological theories trying to explain why the universe um, is not uh, is not perfectly symmetrical if it really is just the result of a single explosion radiating, radiating outwards from a single point. Um, in uh, religious terms, the problem is uh, if you have an undifferentiated God, how does an undifferentiated God get to a world where there is difference, right? And if you have philosophic attempts to resolve it, you have Kabbalistic attempts to resolve it, uh, right? That's a fundamental challenge in, in basically every field of human thought. Now, in this story, um, what you have is a movement, it seems, from uh, some kind of echad to some kind of more than echad, although I put out again that, that the more than echadness is never mentioned at the end of the story. There's no word for plural. The only potential plural 
that's explicitly in terms of number in the story is Achadim at the beginning. But you can read the story as focused on Echadness at the beginning and lack of Echadness at the end. And if you take that as the axis of which, along which the story goes, so then he's trying to figure out, so what do we think about this movement from uh, Echadness to non-Echadness? So one possibility is we can think of it as a fall. Right? You start off Echad and you cease to be Echad. You can, you, know, you can think of it as a fall with a messianic dream that everything will eventually return to its absolute, right, to its absolute unity. Right? That would be you know, a Rav Cook version. Of history, everything is once unified. Right, and Rav Cook has this conception of the tshuva of the uh, the tshuva of the universe. I can't stop scaring out, uh, sharing out. Everybody can look on with me again. We're, on, we're still on page three, on the bottom, right on the bottom of, of page three of the Makarot. So one possibility is that that's the axis, and it's a fall which will maybe which leads to an ultimate restoration. The problem with that is that God is the cause of it. So why is God the cause of the uh, why why does God cause the fall? So we could try and assimilate this narrative to a uh, right to various conceptions of the story of Gan Eden in the same way, uh, which you know, where you know, why does God tempt them in the fruit right so we provide the temptation of the fruit so it could be that 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 was the ideal condition and then something happened to take them out of Gan Eden but the goal is to return ourselves to Gan Eden in some way so the the right so initially they were right it was supposed to be um, right echad but something happened among human beings. Right, they did something equivalent to, uh, right, to eating the wrong fruit, and so everything. So they fell. Right, they could no longer be allowed to be in this in in the ideal condition of echadness. Um, right, that's one version of the story. Second version of the story is what we call progress and evolution. No, this is something that we want to have happen, <laughs> and it happened in a way that might not be ideal. Right, God comes down and is unhappy with them. But maybe, and you could again read the story, the Gan story the same way, right? Maybe that was a necessary stage in order to get them, right? Maybe God wanted that all along, God wanted us to know, um, right, to know Tovarah, but, um, right, maybe he would have wanted it some other way. But really, this is a better condition than, right, that had been there, that had been there previously. We could set up, you know, philosophic models, Hegelian models, whatever you want to make that happen. We can have a cyclical notion. It's just to say that this isn't trying to tell us anything about which stage is better or worse. It's just telling you that, you know, that in human conditions, you might think that echadness is a permanent stage that you should seek to reach. And the message of the story is no, echadness is not a stage that you can reach. Echadness will always devolve into multiplicity again. And so you should be aware from the start that this is always going, right? You could, maybe it's your, should be your goal. Maybe it shouldn't be your goal. But it's not something that is ever stably achievable, um, right? It's right. Mechadness um, always decays into that, and this is just telling you one of the stories in order to um, prevent you from having the um, the unification fantasy. Um, okay, and, you know, people always find it hard to believe. Um, you know, the same way, let's say that many you know, ideologues of various political systems are not happy. Um, with Aristotle's contention that all forms of political systems eventually decay into others, right? He gives you the, the way in which right, democracy decays into right um, into this. Right? It's not happy if you want if you you know believe that America is a permanent democracy. Um, okay, then there's another vision we call the spiral vision, which is a version of the progress evolution story, which is say that it's not a straightforward thing. It's not that multiplicity is better than um, than than um, than singleness. And it's not 
that um, that you oscillate back and forth between two stable conditions, but that the way in which you have to progress is you say you go from this to this, and when you go back, but the ideal is when you go back to from multiplicity to singleness, you're a little higher level of single of singleness. In order to get to the next level of singleness, you have to go through multiplicity again, right? That's much, that I guess probably a much more Hegelian model, uh, right? In which you're constantly you're constant you're constantly proceeding that way, and so this is a a necessary stage. You you know that this necessary stage is going to produce is going to produce its reaction again, but don't think that should lead to cynicism, despair, or confidence, whichever whatever it is that stability yields to you. This is actually um, a good thing and part of the and part of the plan. So when you think about the story of McDowell, you have to think about right if you think the right move is from achat or echad to more than to more than achad, so you have to think about how that would play out. Okay, those are my those are my six um, six background um, axes. I'll review them again, but if you have it in front of you, right? One is horizontal versus vertical. Uh, one is the the focus on naming. Uh, third, yeah, right. A third is the question of whether this is supposed to be the whole Earth or just a sample, right? Just a uh, educational example. Um, the fourth is the four meanings of echadness. Uh, the fifth is whether the, all the everything you're looking for has to be in the story, or whether the story can be focusing you on something that's not right, that's not there, uh, right? The story is a lens to focus on what's missing, and then the last is uh, how you think about uh, philosophically about the move from echadness to uh, non echadness. Okay, so let's now move on to uh, Rabbi Sachs. Okay, so now we're on page four of the uh, page four of the of the source sheet. Um, Okay, so Rabbi Sachs, all right, and this is, right, these are quotes taken from the, the core chapter of, um, of Dignity of Difference, which is a thing called Exercising Plato's Ghost. Um, so here's, right, here's, the, I guess, what uh, Rabbi David Wilkerfeld, I think, called the money, the money quote. I imagine that that's the correct language. Uh, One belief, more than any other, to quote a phrase of Isaiah Berlin's, um, I think, right, he quoted in his, in his Hespit for uh, Isaiah Berlin, is responsible for the slaughter of individuals on the altar of history's greatest ideals. It is the belief that those who do not share my faith or my race or ideology do not share my humanity. At best, they are second-class citizens. At worst, they, for they forfeit the sanctity of life itself. If, fa if faith is what makes us human, then those who do not share it are less than fully human. I used to think that the Holocaust had cured us of this idea that it was impossible not to hear from the ghosts of Auschwitz the cry never again. Now I'm not so sure. I've come, I apologize that my accent isn't anywhere near as good as Rabbi Sachs's. I've come increasingly to the view uh, that if we do not, like Yaakov, wrestle with the dark angels of our nature and beliefs, there will be other tragedies in Rwanda, Cambodia, and the Balkans already have been. And this book is written um, in the aftermath of 9-11. Uh, right? And there will be introduction talks about his experience at, 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 um, at a memorial, memorial a ceremony, interfaith memorial ceremony the year after 9-11 and how that, uh, that really motivated this book. Uh, there, uh, this is the greatest religious challenge of all, and much depends on whether we are equal to it. It is a challenge posed in the Bible's opening chapters. Two people bring an offering to God. The name of one is Abel, the other is Cain. I read this as a clear and faithful warning at the very beginning of the book of books, that just as there is a road from faith to redemption, there is a path for the misuse of religion to violence. What is it that leads people to shed blood in the name of God? There is one answer with which we are familiar. Religion is about identity, and identity excludes. Okay, that's a very powerful line, right? That um, right, that religion is profoundly dangerous because religion gives people a sense that I am 
right? I am I and you are other, and that can lead to violence and death. And that's right, and that's and that's where um, ideals turn into slaughter because ideals set up a model. Well, I live up to that ideal, and you don't. So therefore, you're not right. Therefore, right? Why do you really deserve to live? And that's a very odd position, you would think, for a Jewish Orthodox theologian to uh, to articulate. Uh, I know that uh, some of my friends just were circling recently. Uh, you know, a, a Christian minister's uh, reflection where they argued that was. The flaw of the Jews, right? The Jews did not, um, right? The Jews did not see, um, did not see, you know, God, the experience of God as a call to inclusion, but rather as a call to exclusion. And that's how, you know, and it was a basically supersessionist Christian um, a speech you don't really hear so much in America um, nowadays. So, right there's Jonathan Sachs saying the same thing. Okay, so Ray Sachs uh, later on says, right, but that's not that's not how he understands Torah as an Orthodox rabbi. What he understands is the core movement of Torah is right. He said, if you were right, he thinks that all of these notions, right, the thing that that um, that um, Isaiah Berlin said was the cause of all the violence, is this notion that at core there's a single idea, a single ideal which everyone is supposed to share, and as long as we all share, and those who share this ideal are first-class citizens slash human, and those who don't share that ideal which can be a vision of God, of faith, all those sorts of issues, our second class is, and that's what leads to violence. But he says, right, and, so, right, and he, he attributes this to Plato. Um, Professor Wishergrad attributed it to Parmenides. We're not going to get into the technical technicalities of what the different arguments are uh, for the right, for privileging um, the, the underlying unity as opposed to the, the visible or the, pheno the phenomenal, the phenomenal uh, pluralism. Um, and so he says, you know, if in the standard religious work, the progression of the work is, right, is in the standard idealist work in that way, the progression of the work is from multiplicity to the point where everyone joins and shares the same idea. And so this is the core, this is the core of, um, this is against, right, by any conventional standard, the order of the stories of Torah are wrong. They begin with universal humanity. We start from Adam Rishon. There's only one being. Everyone is the same. And only then proceed to the particular. One man, Abraham, one woman, Sarah, and their descendants. By reversing the usual order and charting instead a journey from the universal to the particular, the Bible represents the great anti-Platonic narrative, narrative in Western literature. Against Plato and his followers, and here's the line where he, where he tells you how the way he understands the singular, the echad to non-echad axis. Against Plato and his followers, the Bible argues that universalism is the first and not the last phase in the growth of the moral imagination. All right, so Ray Sachs's chidush is that we have read that the axis, the move from echad to non-echadness, which Migdal Bavel exemplifies, uh, right, but is really just part of the movement generally, um, is a movement opposed to the primacy of underlying unity, and in favor of, right, in favor of of pluralism, um, and therefore it's the anti-Platonic narrative that's moral imagination. Um, okay, so now we have to watch, like this is this is a move, right? Because you, a very common way of understanding the narrative, right? A, you know, a, a parochial way of standing it is that we move from humanity. 
and the scope of Torah narrows. And the point of narrowing it is that fewer, right, God originally has this ideal for the whole, and eventually, right, everyone else becomes second-class citizens, right, maybe not, right, maybe not even in the same way, because they no longer live up to that ideal. Um, now you can say, okay, we're going to restrain that in lots of ways. We're going to say, right, we're not going to say you're second-class citizens, we're not going to say that you're, right, that you're not human, but it's in that reading, it's still hard not to say in the end, the best you can say is, our goal is for everybody to reach the stage, uh, right, to reach the same state as minority who are still in that stage of the ideal. That is a perfectly reasonable way of looking at the progression of stories in Chumash. Um, so Rabbi Sachs says, but Migdal Bavel is not that way. Because Migdal Bavel does not end up with a narrowed focus. All right? It's within the story, right? Now he doesn't make the point, but it's within the story of the Toldot of Shame. All of a sudden a story comes in which moves from single to multiple and tells you nothing whatever about one of those one of those multiples mattering more than the other. We just spread everybody out. So maybe Migdal Bavel tell, gives us insight into the meaning of the other movement um, from universal to particular. Right, so we have right. So we have, really have two kinds of moves. We have the move of all of which is from universal to particular. And then we have a move in Medabavel, which is from universal to plural. And Rabbi Sachs wants to argue that the Medabavel story is the key to understanding everything else. And here we get to the last book. Right, this is uh, right, this story. It says, God, the creator, the creator of humanity, having made a covenant with all humanity, then turns to one people. I sorry, I skipped the line. Right, the night. Let's fix it. Yeah, let's. We'll, we'll do it out of order. Right. So, turns to one people and commands it to be different, in order to teach humanity to make space for difference. Biblical monotheism is not the idea that there is one God and therefore one truth, one faith, one way of life. On the contrary, it is the idea that unity creates diversity. All right. So this is his amazing chidush. But his amazing, right, his chidush is that in the story of the story of Torah, what you learn from Migdal Bavel is not that God is only interested in the Jews, it's that God, in a sense, is even interested in the Jews. Right? They're much smaller than the rest of things, but every unique strand is valuable, and the purpose of Judaism is to, is to teach that particularism, not this particularism has value, but that all particularism has value. Right, that's where the, you know, so there, there are lots of entities we could talk about. We could talk about you know, all, all the, the moral arguments from Jews as the other in, in history, right, which this is resonating with, but I'm going to try and keep it uh, narrow in scope. Right, that he's, that's his argument, right, is that we should read the story of Abraham in light of the story of Migdal Bavel, which is that Abraham is just an example of the diversity that God prefers. Okay, now does this have any antecedents in Jewish tradition? So we'll go back one quote, page 52. He says, The 19th century commentator of an totalitarian in Berlin, Nitziv, interprets Babel as the first totalitarianism. It is a supreme act of hubris committed time and again in history, from the Sumerian city states to Plato's Republic to empires ancient and modern to the Soviet Union. It is the attempt to impose an artificial unity on divinely created diversity. Okay, so as a Jewish interpretation, 
this rests heavily, really the only Jewish source you can really find in the chapter is this quote from the Siv. Okay, so there's the, there is Rabbi Sachs's, I think, amazingly important Chiddush, uh, situated right in the context of Torah, and then localized in a particular reading, which you can uh, decide to your, for yourself at the moment uh, how compelling you find it as a reading of uh, Tanakh. And I'm going to leave that to you. I'm going to go now just do a couple of traditional interpretations and um, and lead back to Nitziv, and you'll see what Nitziv actually says and how that ties into Rabbi Sachs's thesis. Uh, but those of you who haven't yet had the experience are also welcome to read my essay, uh, The Tower of Babel Through Visual Art, which I posted on Facebook, or you can look it up on uh, you can look it up on uh, my website as uh, as well, um, which I think is might also give you some visions as to what fits in the story well or doesn't. Okay, so the the key the key points that I want to put into the um, into the um, into the in, into the narrative in terms of the um, Traditional sources. So you have a you have uh, Rashi who says that when it says Safahat, that means Lashon Hakodesh. So Lashon Hakodesh, uh, right? We you're, we translate sort of as biblical Hebrew, uh, but Lashon Hakodesh is is really more. It can mean biblical Hebrew, but it's really and we'll talk about the relation between that. You know, you can mean proto-Semitic. It really means, I think, is the language the language uh, what I call natural as opposed to artificial language. Everybody spoke a language in which all the words actually were not arbitrary associations of sound with um, of sound with meaning, but where meaning and sound were intimately connected. And the the proof of this is that um, when Adam names the animals, God approves of his names. And if the names and if sound and meaning are arbitrary, so then you know why would you care whether you call this tall this thing with a tall neck and spots giraffe or Fred? It wouldn't matter, right? But Lashon Hakodesh. Lashon HaKodesh the, um, is, is natural language. And I think that this, the, the tradition that Rashi is interpreting here tells you that the story of Migdal Bavel is about natural to artificial language. That's my, my preferred reading of the story, and that's why the puns matter, because even though, right, because in, in a world of natural language, you can figure out that artificial things like brick replace rock just because they sound alike. Uh, then the problem with Migdal Bavel is that, it's a, it's, is that we live in a world in which there's no natural language, so you have to recreate the the shift from natural to artificial language in artificial language, and that's what the point of the Lamed as a prefix, making Avin sound like Evan is. Okay, that, that's an indulgence again of my own, my own reading of the story. Um, as opposed to, but I think it's important to understand Rash, that Rashi says there was a there was a unity, and that unity is really valuable, right? It's Lashon HaKodesh, uh, and the price of Midalavel is we lose the capacity, we really lose something when we diversify, which we lose natural language, which in some way relates to holiness. As the alternative, uh, which is Rabbi Yosef Bechor Shor, right, is a little, a little later than Rashi, um, so he says that what it means, what Safahat means that everybody knew all languages, but there is multiplicity at the beginning. So it's not that, right, the shift is not from single, from echadness to non-echadness. The shift is from everybody containing all the different things to everybody containing only part of it. And that's a complicated thing, which I mentioned right, because of multiculturalism, right? If everybody knows all 70 languages, then there really is no diversity. Everybody's exactly the same, right? So we have all the debates about multiculturalism now. Uh, there's a plus in that when everybody knows all 70 languages, nobody needs anybody else to complete themselves. Whereas when you shift to everybody knows only one language, the if you put yourselves together, then as humanity, you all know, you know the total, you need each other. So we can write some before sure is a very different vision of what the move from a right? You might say that for Rashi, 
you move from uh, some kind of sense of simplicity to complexity, which which where that involves a loss, but before sure you move from some kind of unity to right to division, uh, which also involves a loss. But there's no but in Rashi's version there's a there's a, a permanent loss. Even if you put all the languages together, that won't they're, they're still all artificial and you're not creating any kind of natural language. But before sure if you put everyone together, they get back to knowing everything as a collective. That was known. Um, that was known originally. Um, Sforno says that the, as I understand it, Sforno says that the two times when the people say "haba" are actually referring to different strands of society, and we reflect right, and we are, um, and so the notion of a classless society, but actually, right, the Sforno reads it as it was a classless society that was hierarchical. Right, because they're right. He has the common people who said, "Let's bake bricks," and right, and they just wanted to do practical things. And then all of a sudden, the right, the uh, people interested in politics say, "Let's build a city. Let's build a tower. Right, let's turn it right." As opposed to right, the way Sforno reason was originally the "Let's build bricks" was let's stop being nomads and let's build permanent dwellings. And as, but as soon as you turn to permanent dwellings, then people say, "Aha! That opens up the possibilities of power. You can tie that into the whole notion of the pastoral." Versus the uh, versus the ur- the urban nomadic versus agricultural, all the axes along which people have interpreted stories like this. Okay, but the last point is uh, the last point is Nitziv. Please don't tell me tell me that I didn't. Bring it. Sorry, if that was a question. And look at that, I managed on the Makarov sheet to cut off Nitziv, which is really a bad idea. Okay, I'm gonna hang on one sec. I'm gonna I'm gonna share the right document in a minute as soon as I find it. Um, because the answer is that Nitziv really does, um, Nitziv really does say this. Um, Nitziv, uh, Nitziv says, Yamim uh, Achadim. Um, so Nitziv says that, what, is it, what does Yamim Achadim mean? Right, so Nitziv says, um, let, me, let me share this, share the screen. They only have it in English now. You can look it up in Hebrew. Uh, you can look it up in Hebrew afterwards. I apologize. Uh, try and make the current sheet and blow things at the end. Okay. So the Yitzhiv um, says the following, right? Solitary words, right? Dvarim, that's my translation of Dvarim Achadim. Scripture does not tell us what these, um, does not tell us what these words were, right? Why? To teach us that it was not the content of these words that aroused the Holy One who was blessed, who was blessed to action, but rather their being Achadim. Okay, so that's the first thing Yitzhiv says, right, is that, the, the, right, is that by saying Dvarim Achadim, it's telling you don't matter what they were, right? What matters is that they were achadim. Okay, it says lest we let um, lest we lest we scatter over the face of the whole land. So it says, right, so what is what are they were? There is a need to understand why they were so concerned lest a few of them would go to some other land. It should be understood that this relates to their dvarim achadim, since the minds of human beings are not identical. They worried lest some people leave this opinion and adopt another thought, and therefore they watched carefully that no one leave their settlements. Anyone who strayed from their solitary words was sentenced to be burnt, as happened to Avraham. Okay, so Nitziv really does read the story that way. He uh, he reads it in the context of the rabbinic narrative that what's happening here is the develop the building of the empire of Nimrod, and the story that you know that probably at some point many of you had the experience that you know that you grow up with the story of Avraham being thrown into the fiery furnace, and then you discover you know later in late later in life that that story is not mentioned anywhere. In, in Torah, you have to figure out why, right? Ramban is all discussion of why that's not in the Torah. But it seems says that the Nisraf, let's build bricks and let's and let's burn a burning, 
is a reference to that story of Avram, but and that this is the right. This is the story in which Avram, as a religious dissenter, is uh, is sentenced to be burnt for his um, for for his holding out against idolatry. But it seems says the point is not so much monotheism versus idolatry. The point is totalitarianism. Everybody has to think the same way, and then somebody thinks differently, and he thinks that the whole point of building a watchtower and making sure that nobody leaves is enforcing uh, uniformity of ideas. Right? Now, Nassim has um, likely has uh, right has the growth of communism in his in his mind as he's as he's writing this, and there are lots of ways in which uh, my other essay talks about how. This uh, red-headed sieve maps beautifully onto uh, George Orwell's Animal Farm, but I think that this is a um, that this is a very clear precedent for Rabbi Sachs's reading. That's correct. Uh, now, sieve talks about ideas. He doesn't frame it uh, about religion per se, except that you have because, or at least he puts his religion in the position of the persecuted as opposed to the persecutor, and that's the kind of challenge Rabbi Sachs keeps talking about. Right? Is yeah, but what do you really think everybody should? Let's suppose that Avraham was in power and not Nimrod, and Nimrod came along and said, "I wanted to worship idols." So, right? So that doesn't sound. So that's the challenge in Rabbi Sachs's reading, right? How do you, right? If you think that the moral of the story was not that Avraham um, shouldn't have been thrown into the furnace because he was right, or that Avraham shouldn't have been thrown into the furnace because you shouldn't throw people into furnaces for thinking differently, or even more radically, that. You shouldn't throw people in the furnace for thinking differently, not because they might be right and you might be wrong. You shouldn't throw into pe people into furnaces in, because they think differently, because who says that you're both supposed to be thinking the same thing? Who says that there is necessarily only one right? Uh, now, Sir Sachs's chiddush is that he right is that he might makes this the right the position of Jewish tradition that um, right that we stand in principle for. Religious pluralism. The purpose of the story of Hamash is to right is that Jews are supposed to model the importance of different, what he called the dignity of difference, um, and that is in fact what Nitziv seems to say. Uh, now, Sachs, as like everybody else, right? Rabbi Sachs, if his Rabbi Sachs's um, fudge in a sense is, well, we all agree on the Sheva Mitzvah by Noah. God made universal covenant with Noah. So that's always going to be tested, right? Does that include a Zara, right? So that's where where I would say is that the there's still a lot of work to do to figure out exactly the parameters, and Rabbi Sachs is not going so far, you know, as to you know he he hasn't resolved the tolerance of intolerance um, paradox and all those sorts of issues. Uh, when the book came out, but famously, uh, the London Beitin um, objected to it, uh, and it was a second edition was put out that censored. Um, it seems very likely that the Beitin didn't understand what he was saying, and therefore the censor changes make very little difference. But certainly part of the tension was it was that whether it was that they sensed that he was talking about religious pluralism, um, where he talked about distinguishing between you know that you have one God, the multiple faiths, and they couldn't quite figure out how he was dealing with um, how he was dealing with the Vodazara. So there's still a lot of work to do. But I would leave you know. At this point for this year, and I know that there's a presidential debate that some of us uh, feel that we're sentenced to watch, um, but I'll stay and answer questions if people want. Um, I think that Rabbi Sachs is reading again. It has enormous appeal to me. Um, I think that it is an interesting 
plausible reading, if, even if it's not necessarily the reading I would pick as the most likely reading of the story, but maybe there are many, many plausible readings of the story as I gave you all the axes to think about it. It is building um, on Nitziv in a way which I think is, um, I think that's true. Uh, there's a lot of work to do on it. And um, I think, yeah, I, I, I hope that, that all of us will spend lots of time doing the work because it really needs to be uh, be done. And I hope that this share uh, contributes um, both to spread his work and as a switch for his refluent lima. Okay, that's the end of uh, what I have to say. If people have questions, I'm happy to stay and uh, and answer and answer questions. Thank you all for coming. Wonderful to see lots of you that I don't see that often. Hi, Toba. Hi, Len. Hi, Yael. Um, and um, but Josh, always gets to see you a lot these days. <laughs> Hi. Thank you. Really Hi. Thank you. Thank you.